What I'm going to tell you this morning is a story that happened a long, long time ago. And as stories that happened a long time ago, it's one of those that sort of blends a little bit into myth. And so I'll get most of the details right. Some of them I won't get right. Some of them other people would have a different take on. But we're church people, and we're used to stories, and we're used to stories that happened a long, long time ago, and we're used to stories that then it is our job to make some meaning of. So go along with the story, see where it takes you, and know that it is a universal story. This story could have happened in almost any time, in almost any place, to almost any church, but it didn't. It happened to this place and this church. By way of reading, I want to read an announcement that appeared in both the New England Chronicle and the Essex Gazette, two local newspapers at the time. And the date of those those newspapers was Cambridge, September 6th, 1775. Here's the announcement that was published in the paper. Cambridge, September 6, 1775. The students of Harvard College are hereby advertised that the town of Concord, in the province of the Massachusetts Bay, is pitched upon by the honorable and reverend corporation and overseers of said college as a proper place for convening the members of said public seminary of learning, and that by the vote of the corporation, said students are required to come together at the town aforesaid on the fifth Wednesday of October next, where all necessary provision has been made for their reception, and they will have boarding and chamber furniture at a reasonable rate. At the aforesaid time and place, the president, professors, and tutors will attend to the usual instruction and business of said college. Note, there is not to be a fall vacation the present year. Samuel Langdon, President. Imagine what it must have been like living in the Boston area, or even as far out as Concord, in 1775, in the spring of 1775. We all know, are quite familiar with what happened on April 19th. We know how the British left Boston and Paul Revere and Samuel Prescott were riding ahead, sounding the alarm, and they came down the road and Samuel Prescott came into Concord and there was the skirmish on the green in Lexington and then the British showed up and they came through the church and they rummaged through the tavern and then they went on over to the old North Bridge and they had a little skirmish over there and then they made their way back. We're not going to deal with any of that today. (laughs) That's a story this town knows well. It doesn't know so well the next few things that happened. But imagine what it would be like to be living on the brink of war in Massachusetts. Boston was full of redcoats. It was full of British soldiers. Uh, It was the main place that they were stationed and garrisoned in Massachusetts and England knew that it was on the brink of war as well, so they were amassing troops in Boston. 
And so it was hard to do anything in Boston. You couldn't come and go freely. Uh, your movement was restricted. What you could purchase was restricted. And it was probably a little bit dangerous. It had a dangerous feel to be in Boston. Well, just across the river, in a place that we think of as being really part of Boston these days, was Cambridge. Well, the story in Cambridge was much different. It was still far enough away from Boston in those days that that's where the uh, colonists were amassing their troops. So generals, George Washington and some other folks, were starting to amass troops in Cambridge. And there were starting to be little skirmishes that happened across the Charles River. Uh, there'd be little raids, and somebody'd go get this, and somebody'd steal that, and somebody'd fire on somebody else, and somebody'd fire back. And what was happening in Cambridge was that the Continental Army, they, were, they needed places to house the soldiers that they were amassing. And so the logical institution that had buildings was Harvard College. And so what was happening is that Cambridge was starting to fill up, and they were starting to use uh, the classroom buildings, they were starting to use the library, they were starting to use uh, some of the dorms to house soldiers in. And so Harvard is left with this quandary. What do we do? We're surely going to begin the school year late, and it might not even happen in the year 1775-1776. Meanwhile, out in Concord, the Reverend William Emerson is serving this church. Now, he's Ralph Waldo Emerson's grandfather and father to another William. There's quite a few William Emersons, so it's hard to keep them straight. Um, He's father to William Emerson, who is a minister in Boston. Um, But at the time, he has come to be the minister of this church. Um, He's a sixth-generation Puritan minister, so that means that the five men in his family preceding him had all been Puritan ministers, and he's the sixth. And just for point of reference, he is a Trinitarian minister. So, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, just fine in this place. He has come here. He entered Harvard College to study for the ministry at age 14. So he's a bright young man. He graduated a few years after that, and he came, uh, he graduated in 1761, and he was called to his first and only church, this one. And in those days, this church was called the Church of Christ in Concord. So if you ever hear anybody, you know, wanting to change its name, we could always go back to the original, though I don't know if that would fly. So William Emerson is here. He's a young man. He's just graduated from college. He's been serving this church for a few years. Um, and one of the first things that he did upon arrival was he showed up, a dashing young minister, um, one of the more learned people in town, and he fell in love with the former minister's daughter. So he falls in love with Phoebe Bliss. Uh, her father, Daniel Bliss, had been the minister of this church for many years, and William Emerson shows up, falls in love with the former minister's daughter, Phoebe Bliss. They marry, and he builds the old manse for them to live in. So he has the old manse built as their house, and it's then subsequently the church's parsonage. And for anybody new to town, the old manse stands right next to the old North Bridge, and you can tour it to this day. On that fateful day that we're not going to talk very much about, April 19th, 1775, Emerson, um, there there are conflicting stories about what Emerson was doing that day. 
Um, some stories say that he watched the battle with Phoebe from the upstairs window in the old manse. I, in my research, came across another account that said that Phoebe was actually fairly upset with him because he was not safely in the house that day, that he was, in fact, out with the troops and that, um, you know, he could have been uh, hit himself. So whether he was in the house or whether he wasn't in the house, they were definitely on the property when that battle happened. And what is happening for Emerson is that um, his patriotism is growing and growing and growing. Um, He is not a Tory. There are a few Tories living in town, but this church and its minister are squarely on the side of revolution. So um, the other thing that William Emerson did was that he kept close ties to Harvard and to Cambridge. Uh, The accounts that I read were, were that he was there quite often. So he would ride his horse over to Cambridge. Um, He was often invited to to dinner at the president's house, at the Harvard College president's house. So you can imagine what happens to William Emerson when he learns that Harvard may not be able to function that year. Um, This would pain him deeply. Here's an institution. Harvard had been around for 140 years by that time which by most accounts is a long time, and Emerson does not want uh, Harvard to go without a place to hold classes. So he says to the president of Harvard, President Langdon, he says, well, why don't you come out to Concord for the year? How hard could it be? Right? So in 1775, Harvard is 140 years old. It has a library of 5,000 books, It has quite a few of the very latest uh, scientific uh, gadgets and equipment, and it has 143 male students ranging from age 13 to age 19. 143. So they decide to move from Cambridge to Concord for the school year. Here's what appears in the minutes of the select board, our own uh, town minutes. September 1775. The selectmen and committee of the town of Concord, on the request of the government of the college, have consented that the meeting house, courthouse, and schoolhouse in said town be improved for the purposes of the worship, instruction, and care of the college. That's what the minutes read. That was Concord's invitation Harvard. And from the accounts that I read, it was a heroic effort to get everything out here. Remember, in those days, there's no train, there are no automobiles. All of this is done by horse and cart. And the stories are that the good folks of Concord um, pretty much volunteered uh, to take days off from their labor. And they took their carts and their horses and they went into Cambridge and they just loaded up books and they loaded up scientific equipment and they just trundled it all out here to Concord. And think about Concord in those days. So it doesn't look at all like it looks now. It was much more loosely gathered. Uh, the description I read said that there were only about 75 homes that were in close enough proximity for the students to take classes here in the church and over at the courthouse. And so you can imagine 143 students descending on 75 families or less. So oftentimes there would be two or three students living 
with a family. And that year was quite difficult as well because the distances made it hard. You had to get from your family's home to the church or to the courthouse for your, for your classes. And um, the Barrett House over on Monument Street was turned into the library. In fact, there's a wonderful account of how uh, they had to get a special carpenter who knew how to make proper bookshelves, and they essentially remodeled the Barrett home to be the Harvard Library for the year. There's also another note when the whole thing was over that said that most of the shelving was then again taken out. There's a little note that says that Reverend Emerson personally brought the famous and scientifically accurate Harvard clock to Concord on December 18, 1775. You can still see this clock. It is still running, and it is still at Harvard, but he personally brought that out. I don't know if it was over at the old manse or if it was in another building, but he personally brought it out. So this was a heroic effort to bring Harvard out here, and it was a tough year for everybody. There was no fall vacation that year. They just didn't have time. Uh, The shortened days made it hard for the students to uh, get all of their classes in, and they had to double up on some classes. But the year was a success. Forty-two seniors graduated from Harvard that year. Uh, The Reverend William Emerson gave the graduation address, which I think is quite fitting. And on June 21st, 1776, Harvard College moved back to Cambridge just days before the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, 1776. So what? Why is this quirky little chapter in our church's life important? Why would it matter? It was one funny year, long ago, mostly forgotten by the church and by the town and maybe even by Harvard. I think it's important because no one knew what was going to happen in those days or in ours. You and I turn on the news in the evening, and we don't have any idea what has happened during the day. I'm usually astounded by what has happened during the day and can't imagine so much has happened during the day and that it could be so awful. But we human beings are engaged in society and we support institutions, but we don't know what is going to happen. Harvard College didn't know if we would go to war It didn't know if it would be able to get back in its buildings after a year. It didn't know if it would even be able to hold classes for a year. They didn't know what would happen any more than we know what will happen. The other thing that I think makes it important is that both the town and the ministers and the church by extension took a chance. They just offered an invitation. They just said, Let's see if we can make it work. Let's try this. Here is an institution that we value that's in trouble. It needs some help. We got some space. We got some people. Let's take a chance on this. It could have been a complete disaster, but that didn't stop them from offering the invitation and making it work. And the people came together to make an awkward situation work which, when you think about it, is pretty much all of history. 
people coming together to make an awkward situation work. I'm sure there were frustrations that year. I'm sure that there were parents that were worried about their children. I'm sure that there were houses where people were piled too deep in bedrooms. I'm sure that there were times when the food was threatening to run out. People came together to make the best of an awkward situation. The other thing that's true is that the good of the students and the good of the country took precedent. That's why Concord did it. That's why this congregation did it. They cared for the students. They put the students' uh, good ahead of their own, just as they were putting the good of their country ahead of their own. And lastly, I think that this is an important little chapter in our history because nobody said that they wouldn't do it just because it was going to be hard. Lots of things in life are hard. We face things every single day that are hard. And that doesn't mean that we don't take on challenges. It means that we take them on knowing that we take them on not alone and not without talents, not without skills, not without resources, but we take them on precisely because they are hard. And if they are hard, then they are worth doing. On August 6, 1776, the Reverend William Emerson left this church and left his family to join George Washington's army as its first military chaplain. We can be proud as a congregation and a denomination that we have the first military chaplain in William Emerson. He left Phoebe over at the old manse, and he left her with young children, if you can imagine. The youngest of their children was just nine days old. She would never see her father again. Slavery had not been abolished in eight, until eight, 1780, so William Emerson took his male slave, Frank, with him, and left his two female slaves, Kate and Phyllis, with his wife and children. Emerson went with George Washington's troops up to Fort Ticonderoga. They'd gone up there because there were cannons up there, and the Continental Army was in uh, short supply of weaponry. So can you imagine? It's a long, long ways to Fort Ticonderoga on horse and in with carts, and to go there and to get cannons and to bring them clear back here was a heroic effort. Emerson went along and they reached Fort Ticonderoga and they got the cannons, but while they were there, Emerson took ill. And he was so ill that by the time they got to Rutland, Vermont, he could not go any further. And he stayed in the house of a friend in Rutland for a week or so, and he died there in Rutland, Vermont, and he's buried in the cemetery there. Across the street in our cemetery is merely a cenotaph, which is just an honorary grave marking. So when you go up the hill to visit um, Daniel Bliss and Ezra Ripley, and you see uh, William Emerson's grave up there, his bones are not there, but uh, that was built in his honor. He is actually buried up in Rutland, Vermont. Also in the spring of 1776, 
a young Ezra Ripley graduated from Harvard College. Now, Ezra Ripley had remembered fondly the year that he had spent here in Concord. He was one of the students that got moved from Cambridge to Concord and spent the school year here. And in 1778, he was brought back to Concord and he was selected as the next minister of this church to succeed William Emerson. At first, uh, the young minister, the young Ezra Ripley, uh, began by inhabiting the old manse, which was the parsonage, and he was really just boarding with Phoebe Bliss Emerson. It's a pretty big house. There was room for both of them there, and nobody thought a thing about it. Two years later, lo and behold, he has fallen in love with Phoebe Bliss Emerson, and the young Reverend Ripley decides that he will marry his predecessor's widow. And so Phoebe Bliss Emerson becomes Phoebe Bliss Emerson Ripley. She is the daughter of one of the church's ministers and wife of both of his immediate successors. That must have caused some tongues to wag about town, don't you think? And because you're going to come to church next week, you're going to get to hear a whole lot more about Ezra Ripley and his 63 years as the minister of this congregation. But I won't dwell on him much more other than to tease you a little bit with that detail. Other than a chapter in our church's history, The Meeting House on the Green, there is almost nothing written about the year that Harvard came to Concord. Almost nothing. There are just a few tiny notes here and there that make us know that it happened, and so the rest is supposition. The last official act Harvard College is recorded to having taken uh, regarding this year was their attempt to pay Concord for its trouble. And I want to read you from the minutes of the Harvard Corporation. On June 24, 1776, just after the members of the class of 1776 had dispersed to their homes, the Harvard Corporation took this action, and this is recorded in their minutes. Voted that the sum of 10 pounds be granted to the town of Concord as a compensation for the use of the meeting house while the college was there, the said sum to be paid into the hands of the selectmen of the said town by the steward as soon as the gallery money charged in the quarterly bill for, pres for the present can be collected. Ten British pounds to the town of Concord to host Harvard College for a full church year. Think about it. Clearly, we did not do it for the money. <laughs> so be it. Amen. Amen.